You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada. I am thrilled to introduce you to our next guest. Uh, Pedro Barada is the executive director of the Future Skills Center. I'm going to say it again because it's such a cool name. Future Skills Center. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, he works with the key project partners to realize the center's mandate and objectives to build a network of key partners and stakeholders, lead and invest in cutting-edge research, test and evaluate innovative projects, and ensure that knowledge is shared and acted on. That is the coolest job in the universe. He is ensuring that the future of our country and economy is doing all right. So no big deal. Pedro, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So everyone has an amazing origin story. You know, how, how you, you know, every superhero, whether it's Iron Man, Spider-Man, you, you name it, has got one. Tell me about how you got to the position you are today, because your background is, is fascinating. Well, I, I confess I'm a bit of an interloper because I know that uh, the focus of your podcast, you know, is around uh, marketing. That is not my my background. I actually come from a community background, and I know that both of us share a bit of a social work education. And I started out uh, working in a community agency right on the ground, eventually ended up in senior roles in the not-for-profit sector, in this case at United Way. United Way in Toronto is actually the biggest United Way in the world, a very generous community. And in community, you, uh, you, you know, it's all about getting people to find shared value, to find purpose, to work together. And you learn to talk and work with people from all walks of life and, and various sectors, various points of view. And you also learn that the sweet spot in getting people to move is when you can find the right thing, the smart thing, and the enlightened, self-interested thing. And anytime those three things come together, right, you've got, you know, you've got some do-gooding happening. And um, I'm, I'm really, I've, I've always been really passionate about my work, making a difference. And, uh, you know, passion makes for great storytelling. So I found myself with opportunities to, you know, be at the front of the room and shape strategy that is ultimately about getting people to do the right thing. So here I am, Darian. Amazing. Amazing. So there's all a lot of talk. People know the term like, you know, white collar employees. There's blue collar employees. And the, the phrase is coming up more and more often, new collar employees, this new world of jobs that never even existed, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago whether you're a YouTube creator full-time, you know, making six figures, whether you're a uh, social media influencer, whether you're a digital ad strategist, whether you are a SEO project manager, whatever it looks like, all these new jobs that are coming up now and in the future, there's going to be more needs for it. Tell me about what that looks like as far as providing the skills and the training needed for this new economy, new collar economy, as they say. Uh, yeah, and and the new collar economy, I think, is is also invariably linked to gig work, right? Which also includes, we must say, precarious work, right? So technology, as you said, has certainly been speeding up the pace of change every area of our lives, including work. And of course, it is creating a new class of workers that comes with more flexibility, but also comes with you know more precarity as well. And it is, you know, the fastest rising job category in the Canadian labor market are gig workers. And what we're finding is that, yes, many people choose to work in a non-traditional setting to go into careers that don't follow, you know, sort of the, the standard work relationship. 
And it is true that there are people who are doing extremely well and having a lot of fun and managing to find work-life balance and being really creative. But it's also true that actually the majority of people who find themselves in non-standard work are not necessarily in a position where they're having a lot of fun, where they're choosing their work or whether they're making ends meet. And that is, you know, from the point of view of future skills, we want to make sure that especially for workers who are in non-standard relationships and who may be in more precarious circumstances, that they have a ladder, right, to actually continue to grow and to continue to self-actualize and frankly, to be, you know, part of the labor market that employers are going to need for us to succeed into the future. The challenge is that it tends to be the workers who are the most privileged, the ones who are already, you know, who are well down on their career, who have the resources, who have good jobs, whether in standard, non-standard relationships. It's those workers that actually have access to good career guidance, to a network of people who can help them, you know, sort of get to their next job. And who can probably afford or have a workplace provide them with training. That's half of Canadians, by the way. But what about the rest? And as more and more workers go into gig, how is it that we ensure that they have access to opportunities to continue to grow? And again, this is not just because it's the right thing to do, right? For especially people who are usually at the at the start of their career. But it's also the smart thing to do for our economy because we want people to be lifelong learners. We want people to be at their best. And the only way we're going to do that is if we provide them with opportunities to continue to reskill. I love that point you made. We look at existing companies that are realizing, okay, we got to train or insource maybe digital ads or we got to insource SEO. They've got the access to the resources to provide the training and rapid reskill their current employees, you know, upgrade their skills or, or, you know, refresh their skills for the future. But what your concern is, what about all those people that don't have access to that rapid reskilling or those micro-credentialing opportunities? Yeah, indeed. One of the um, one of the best reports I've seen so far this year, which like really brings this message home, is actually the HR Leader Survey by KPMG. It came out, I think, in February or, or March of this year. And of course, it was speaking with senior HR leaders, primarily among larger employers, about the skills outlook and the training outlook. And there's a, there's a juxtaposition between two figures that I find fascinating. So over two thirds, about two thirds of uh, HR leaders among Canada's largest employers say that skills are going to be absolutely essential and central to a winning strategy for their business moving forward, because they have to think about not just the next job that they need to hire for, but the kind of career tracks that they're creating in the context of ongoing change. So two thirds say, boy, this is really important. But then you ask them, how many of you actually have a strategy or know what you're going to do? And that number falls to one third. That's really problematic because even among those businesses, those employers who can probably, who have the greatest bandwidth and the most resources, right? And the most staying power, the largest employers. If even those employers are saying that we know this is an issue, but a minority of us have a strategy or the resources to be able to invest in this, That means that there's there's a whole world outside of that among self-employed, among small, medium enterprises that face that exponentially. And we are putting a real emphasis on figuring out how is it that we fill that gap and how is it that we come up with solutions that really understand that most people are actually not going to get training and reskilling through their workplace. And when you mentioned a term, uh, the K-shaped recovery Right. And so uh, I'm going to dive into that. And, and especially when it comes down to 
you know, traditionally to get trained up, it was two years, four years full time. But if we're looking at underrepresented groups, you know, newcomers, you know, women, youth, indigenous workers, et cetera, who maybe are, you know, caretaking for the family are working somewhere so they can keep paying the rent every month. You know, they don't have the time to take two years, four years to go get a degree somewhere to learn theory. They need training to get skills to get a job. So tell me more about K-shaped recovery for those that haven't maybe heard the term before and what that means. Uh, I mean, the K-shaped recovery is just a, a reality that we're seeing that continues. It's sort of a bifurcation of opportunities uh, that happened during the pandemic where we saw that white collar workers, <laughs> as, uh, as you referred to them earlier, Darian, but, you know, workers that are more established that have, you know, the office jobs and uh, the professional careers that those workers were actually able to adapt quickly and to do well, to do well in terms of continuing to be productive, continuing to find meaning of, in their work and continuing to, of course, see their, um, see their, uh, their careers grow. But there's, there's another side to that, which was a lot of workers in retail and hospitality, which tend to be disproportionately women, younger, newcomers, BIPOC racialized, those workers actually saw opportunities diminish. And when we look at job losses in Canada, we see that disproportionately, it's workers earning wages of less than $800 per week that were hit the hardest, right? So, you know, when you look at hospitality, food, retail, transportation, those jobs accounted for 65% of the decline in hours worked since the onset of the pandemic. And so with the recovery, we're also, it's not like, you know, we're going to go just back to the old way of doing business. Automation and retail and transportation, uncertainty in our hospitality, the very same careers, the change and disruption is going to continue. And so we know that this bifurcation of opportunity is going to be an ongoing issue. And the question we're asking ourselves, you know, we certainly are, our lane is education, it's skills. We are a, a necessary but not sufficient condition to help everybody get ahead. Like, we don't control housing policy. We don't control wage and labor market policy. We don't control childcare policy. Like, all of those things, right, are really, really key. But we do have to think about access to training and access to training that's accessible because these workers, right, that are finding themselves displaced, that are finding themselves not being able to, to put enough hours together, that are finding themselves as gig workers are precarious, they can't rely on their employer to give them the training that they need. They can't afford to probably access the education that they want. And frankly, to your point, Darian, often they actually don't know where to go, right? They don't know where to go in terms of their next move. And their next move is probably not a four-year degree <laughs> or even a two-year degree. And so we're putting a lot of emphasis in terms of our work and figuring out how can we help people transition faster, faster and, and reskill more quickly. And, and we're doing that both for, you know, more skilled workers, for example, in oil and gas and figuring out like the oil and gas industry is changing. And, you know, a lot of people who work in oil and gas, irrespective of where this is all going, are just, uh, you know, they're looking for their next move that's, that's more stable. And so how, how is it that, you know, in regions like Calgary, for example, in Calgary region, how is it that we, with very talented, you know, scientists and engineers who've been working in oil and gas, who've built that community, we don't want them to leave. So how is it that we start to think about careers in high tech? And what is the road in between to go from oil and gas to high tech that doesn't take four years? 
That's amazing. So when you look at, you know, we, we got the camp of the four-year degrees and the theory schools and they're, they're amazing. But then what's been coming, you know, it's almost been five, seven years coming. You got your brain stations, your lighthouse labs, your jelly academy, the micro-credential schools. So are you teaming up with them? Are you working with the micro-credential schools to get them out there? Or what's, what are some of the kind of the actionables that you guys have done so far? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, on the retail side, it's a, it's a great example. We've always known that there was going that automation was going to have a big impact within the retail sector in just changing jobs, both in terms of you know the checkout counters, right, the stocking and the warehousing. And what uh, what the pandemic has done is just accelerated the inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we're about to see a massive shift, of course, from bricks and mortar to more online. And certainly the pandemic has spurred that along in terms of consumer choices. So what does that mean for a whole class of workers, right, which are more lower skilled, which are in, you know, big cities, small cities, medium cities, right, that sometimes work for like the, the, you know, the, the anchor retailer at the local strip mall. That's a lot of jobs, right? That's a lot of jobs. And so we are working on the micro-credentialing side to look at how is it that we can move those workers from bricks and mortar retail to learning basic digital and technology and even going up the ladder fast, right? How do you go from being able to, you know, provide good sales support online instead of doing it in a store to then moving up, right, and stacking your credentials to then look at data analytics, cybersecurity, and other careers up the ladder. Is it possible to do this? And of course, you know, uh, we're partnering with some great organizations that that have been at the forefront of doing this, but also with with employers like Shopify, right? That's where the future of a lot of these jobs are going to go. So we have to go to the, the source. We have to ask employers, what do you need? And how is it that we work backwards? And I think that that's a conversation about micro-credentials that's, that I don't think we're putting enough emphasis on, Darian. The solution to micro-credentials is not that everybody goes away and comes up with their solution around micro-credentials and we get a thousand flowers blooming on the supply side. It has to start with employers. At the end of the day, it's employers who are going to recognize across sectors, across industries, whether these micro-credentials, whether these credentials are actually meaningful or not, right? And I think we're doing a lot of development on the supply side and not doing enough work working with employer sectors, employer industries to really figure out, like, what is college degree 2.0? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. An interesting, uh, you know, Professor Scott Galloway out of New York, you know, NYU had a lot of discussion, even as a professor of a well-established university, is talking a lot about the disruption within the university sector. You know, the fact that, you know, we are now realizing we can go online, the realization that these university degrees are not getting us jobs right away. So what does that look like and how do we how do we pivot and change? And so it sounds like Future Skills is working to do the research and the work to make that happen and to discover, you know, what's needed. Yeah, and career foundation on this issue of retail with Career Foundation, Lighthouse Labs, Ripen, Canadian Professional Sales Association, we're trying to pull together all parts 
of the solution, all yeah. sitting at the same proverbial table, yeah. coming up with innovation pilots that can show us the playbook for the future. It's awesome. We, as an agency, so my, my day job, I work at a you know, marketing agency, BrainStation continues to put out incredible grads. You know, I think they've got an actual physical location in Toronto, one in Vancouver, and the grads they put out are awesome. And again, within six weeks, they've trained them up in SEO, digital ads, and really given them that foundation to be hireable. And it's been you know, a, a great brand that we've, we've discovered. And you know, they put out good people and they put them out quickly, which is awesome. That's terrific. We need more of that. Oh, that's awesome. So in this and what you're seeing and what you're hearing, what do you see in the trends? What do you think will happen this fall with schools? What do you think will happen this fall for employers and employees? Like, what are you, what are you anticipating and trying to be ready for in the coming months? Well, uh, I, I think, you know, it will definitely be a new normal in terms of the world of work. And hopefully, I think a lot of parents are, are hoping it's a return to, it's a return to the way things were when it comes to school, especially for younger kids, uh, not necessarily for higher education, but you know, 74% of business, three quarters of business, businesses are saying that uh, they're going to let their employees continue to work from home post pandemic. So we are moving, of course, to a much more, uh, much more of a hybrid workplace. And employers are, you know, sort of also uh, saying that they would like to work remotely much more than they were prior to the pandemic, but also to find a better balance. And it's been interesting. I mean, even in my circles, to just see that, you know, younger workers especially <laughs> are like uh, younger workers are looking for a, a good balance, right? Of both, you know, sort of the flexibility and the productivity that working online brings, but also to be, you know, face to face with their colleagues, both on the social and also on the creativity side and the ability to work together, to crack tough nuts together, those kinds of things. I think people are hungry for that, just not, you know, the way that it was, which is full time. And, you know, figuring out how to balance the commute, better quality of life, better flexibility, cer certainly something that all workers want. And frankly, from an employer perspective, look, you have, and the tech industry has known this for, this, this for a while, it's, but now everybody else is in on the secret. Man, you have access to a much wider pool of talent. <laughs> if you provide better work-life balance and people are happier, they're less likely to leave, right? They're also more likely to be bought in. Uh, there's there's definitely benefits to productivity. I think that there was a lot of fear, especially on the front end, about whether people were going to be working from home, but like, you know, watching Netflix. And I think, you know, we certainly seem to have put that one to bed, right? I think people are working more than ever, which is actually part of the problem. And of course, there's, you know, dollars and cents, which is the core business costs around space, travel, food, and um, some very interesting spinoffs as well for people who you know, have left downtowns or have left big cities for, you know, cheaper real estate, perhaps more space. And what this is going to mean in terms of building community around where people live now that, you know, your lunch meeting might happen just down the street, right? You're going to shop at your local retailer. So some interesting spinoffs. I think, you know, around education, uh, higher education is in a really interesting place right now. I think, you know, what the model is going to be and how that model is going to look different for different institutions is something that I don't think we're ready to even predict. You mm -hmm. have, you know, huge opportunities, especially for the bigger higher education institutions yeah. to really consolidate a lot of learning. You have a challenge for smaller, more community-based colleges to get more responsive, to act more quickly, to provide, you know, more micro-certifications 
and you know, you have new players and we talked about this in the previous segment, you have new players on the scene that are uh, providing, you know, valuable credentials yeah. that, that are very timely in today's market. So, so a lot of moving pieces. And I think that there's, there's still a lot, there's still a lot to work out. Yeah, no. And I found it. So I'm, I'm involved in a micro credentialing school, Jelly Academy and, and our best refers are professors. So not like the official schools themselves, but professors are saying, Hey, I, I am handcuffed to teach you theory. I cannot integrate the Google certificates or the Facebook blueprint certificate into the syllabus or the curriculum because there's fees involved as well. But I want to push people to you so that they can get hired with my, you know, the complement of a, a theoretical degree with practical certificates. So it's, uh, you know, those profs that get it are, have been some of the best advocates for micro-credentialing, even though maybe the institution may or may not ever catch on. Uh, yeah, and it's that challenge between you know the visionaries and just the institutional logic of these places that have been around for a long time that is going to require some real courage, some real courage. Yeah, I want to talk about this. So uh, a big, you know, there's there's the three big micro-credentialing schools in Canada for digital marketing are you know BrainStation, Red Academy, and Jelly Academy. Red Academy went bankrupt a month into COVID. You know, COVID happens. They so all these people who were told their Red Academy branded certificate was going to get them a job but now the brand doesn't exist anymore. And so they're now realizing, man, I should have focused on like my Google certs, my Facebook certs, and my, you know, Hootsuite certs because they're universally recognized, globally recognized, and they won't ever go bankrupt anytime soon, like a, a school. What are your thoughts on that and, when, and seeing that happen in our, our country? I mean, I think it just speaks to, you know, <laughs> the need for uh, the need the need for a lot of flexibility and nimbleness in this market and also just recognizing where you sit in the market. What Google has done around their certifications has been, you know, uh, seismic in some ways. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, and we've also worked with Google to make sure that the linkages to BIPOC populations and to, you know, uh, young people facing barriers don't stand in the way of everybody having opportunity to access that. I mean, Google just announced in a big way with big numbers, million dollar investment partnerships with community based organizations that work at the grassroots level that understand, you know, how you balance out the technical certification side with the wraparound supports around mentoring, for example, and other kinds of supports that young people facing barriers are gonna need to succeed. Like this is smart stuff, right? Like everybody knows that of course, you know, like Google knows what they're doing. They can put together a certification that will have, you know, large scale applicability and will will withstand the test of time. But, you know, to be able to have the vision to be able to join that up with, uh, with principles around access and equity and to work in purpose, right? With community-based organizations. I think it's terrific and I and I give them kudos. Now, yeah. not everybody's going to be able to do that. And in the market, you have to know like what is your place and yeah. where's that next opportunity and not overreach. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges that we're going to see in higher education writ large is that, you know, whether you're a, an independent organization that's on the cutting edge of learning or whether you're a well-established university, like Pick your lane, right? Pick your yeah. lane, be very clear about your business plan and be weary of overreaching. Brilliant. I love, I love, I love the shout out to Google. I want to give a shout out to Tristan Lee, who's been on the show before, just the amount of support he's given, you know, small businesses and, and folks across the country. Exciting other venture I've seen in the news, Best Buy has also found the gap of hardware. And so Best Buy has come alongside um, CCAB, 
and Jelly Academy to provide um, anyone who is taking the training to get a micro-credential and they don't have a hardware, cell phone, laptop, they provide it. Best Buy. They're incredible because they said, okay, here's a practical way. Okay, so sure, you can get access to the training, but do you actually have a cell phone or a laptop that can then carry you forward as a remote worker? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, and you've got to learn from examples like that, that bring uh, wanting to do the right thing with what they learned in terms of, yeah. of executing on that so that we can figure out how to take it to scale. You know what's missing in this whole equation, Darian? And man, this really came into focus. We just did a cross-Canada tour virtually that took us to all regions of the country, including the North, right? And the territory. Yeah. What's missing in this equation is the bandwidth, right? Yeah. And the high speed. And like that's, uh, I know that, you know, there's a lot of rich experimentation happening on this one and some promising stuff on the horizon. Yeah. But until we solve that one, a lot of people are going to be at risk of falling behind just by virtue of where they live. Yeah. We literally had a student in one of our cohorts who was from Barrier, BC, who couldn't ever turn on his video for the training because the bandwidth was so low. But he was able to hear the audio and, and see the video, but he couldn't share it. And it was just ironic that the name of his town was Barrier because their internet in that town was very low, which caused barriers to grow their business and to really uh, grow. So speaking of which, I want to talk about those that are remote, maybe living in community, living on band land, maybe in communities that have good bandwidth. And the opportunity, I like that you talk about working from home, of getting jobs maybe for major big agencies in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal but being able to live in community and make a decent salary and use that money for their hometown. Tell me about that and what and maybe what that means. Uh, yeah, this, um, if we can figure out how to put that model together, I think you know we can use this as an opportunity to extend careers to people who otherwise would never be traveling down south, right? Yeah. Uh, and so kudos to University College of the North in Northern Manitoba that's actually working with First Nations in Northern Manitoba and in Saskatchewan and especially younger women, and trying to figure out, like, how is it that we use a, um, it's not really micro-certification, but it's faster units of learning that help remote northern and indigenous community become frontline IT technicians and join the communications industries. They're, like, they're real employers, right? There's telcos, right, that are looking for talent, Right. And, you know, northern businesses, industries, they're having difficulty finding skilled technical workers. And so with the right intermediaries, like, and this is a great example about a university changing its model, right? Figuring out that, like, no, it's not about people walking in through our doors. We have to go to where the needs and opportunities and talent is. We have to actually tailor the programs, right? We have to curate also our programs in ways that are responsive to what the telcos might need. Yeah. And it's, it's, it becomes like a more client-centered, demand-driven, technical platform that is student-centered and employer-centered. Really excited about what they're doing. And I think it's, uh, you know, there are other examples of that happening across the country. And, you know, if we can figure out the bandwidth issue. <laughs> and what I'm also hearing and seeing is more and more schools are actually being sensitive and realizing our entire teaching staff is white and male. And maybe we should change that. And so... I've, I've yeah, had some great discussions with folks saying, okay, what does it look like to lift up and train up and prepare, you know, female and indigenous, you know, black and you know, people of color teachers and instructors so that, you know, these indigenous students don't just see an entire, you know, Zoom wall of instructors that are white. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, the, and, and the issue cuts right across, right? The issue yeah. cuts across, like, you know, every industry, you know, business community, government. This is um, the reckoning 
that is currently in front of us will hopefully lead to action, right? It will yeah. lead to change and it will lead to, you know, tangible opportunities for people yeah. to change the way we've been doing business. Yeah. And, and hopefully smartly too. Like I got asked to teach an IT course because they needed an indigenous teacher. And I was like, well, I don't teach IT. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I barely know how to, you know, turn on my computer and like, no, we should, you could figure it out. We'll give you this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's not my thing. And they're just like, we just need someone. And so I think it's also the, the search to realize that, you know, how do we find these leaders and how do we even prepare them and train them? I want to jump into this topic, which I find interesting. There's governments who are talking about incentivizing employers to hire people from the underserved communities, BIPOC community. And by incentivizing them, they'll give them money. Say, hey, if you hire someone in the BIPOC community, we're going to give you $4,000 or $10,000 as a hiring incentive. And the other option that they looked at was, well, what if we trained up people from the underserved communities so that they were really awesome workers and could release them into the world of what's out there? But I felt like they're, you know, in discussions, they're saying, well, it's safer and easier to give the money to the business to incentivize them to hire. But I'm, you know, I'm, I've, concerns about that, if that's the route it's going to go, because their idea is incentivizing people versus training. Uh, well, two sides of a coin, uh, yeah. certainly on the latter, in terms yeah. of providing more skills training and opportunities for, you know, young people facing barriers for community yeah. barriers. We know that that works. There's, you know, so many examples, even from the work that we're doing. Empower is a fantastic organization. Mm that is actually working with young people facing barriers, majority BIPOC, yeah. and is working with the high-tech industry. Figure out what is it that you need in terms of your, of your young workforce and how is it that we invest in both the technical mm. skills, but also the social-emotional skills, right, yeah. that are going to help people get ahead. And in figure, and also understanding that, you know, systemic barriers around yeah. Access to affordable housing, you know, getting your next paycheck, uh, having access to childcare, those are like real showstoppers in terms of showing up for work and showing up yeah. for training. So having that integrated perspective in how we approach skills development and making it really accessible, I think is really key. The other side of that is what happens when somebody walks in through the door. And yeah. on that side, we need to do a whole lot more work because, of course, you know, systemic racism, white supremacy. Yeah. You know, sexism, you know, uh, discrimination based on ability, all of those things are not going to just magically disappear. And no matter how talented you are, they are going to affect your ability to get ahead, not just get that first job and build a career. So we need to do some of that work internally. But, you know, on the other incentives that you talked about, I have seen some models around incentivizing at a, at a broader systems level that have shown real promise. And uh, I know you're in B.C., um, done a lot of work on community benefit agreements and looking at how publicly funded infrastructure with public money, right, that's going to build stuff that we all need. How is it that publicly built, publicly funded infrastructure can actually lead to career opportunities in the trades and in the more general construction industry for populations that are, uh, that are currently underrepresented and that otherwise are just not going to come in? Yeah. And I've seen major transportation projects for example, set targets around 10% diverse hires yeah. and work with unions, with yeah. employers, with government and community to recognize that the industry needs people. Yeah, The people are not going to come from the traditional communities. Yeah. So how is it that we get ahead of the curve and start to provide that opportunity that is a win-win-win? So, you know, incentives can really work. But like, let's like, let's make them systemic and let's figure out a way that, that they're really about 
uh, the interests of employers, the interests of communities, and the interests of uh, equity-seeking groups. That's awesome. Yeah, because I think my, from my perspective, my concern would be is, okay, so if they are already maybe slightly like, oh, they're a racist light, right? Like a diet racist or whatever. And, and so, but also they're like, they hire someone, the incentive is they got a discount on them. So they're like, oh, they're like a liquidation world or bargain bin employee. And, you know, because they're all, it, it perpetuates, I feel like that thoughts around like, oh, these are discounted employees that the government has affirmed that they're discounted and should be discounted. Whereas the flip side is if they come out and they're like, man, some of the best, most skilled trained workers in you know, marketing digital ads are from this community, like that would be amazing, the flip side. And maybe it would try to you know, change a light racist mind around people. Like, hey, they, you know, yeah, maybe you could be open. I, we do have the models to be able to do the latter. It's yeah. just, we have to recognize that if you're working with communities that are disadvantaged, that have been facing yeah. barriers, the investment can't be just in the technical skills training and certification, but we have to build models that recognize systemic barriers of the what's going to happen when they walk through doors and how is it that we lower barriers around economic security, for example. So like the solution is there, like we can take it and it, it actually in the interests of employers in our economy, if everybody's yeah. the best. That's awesome. I love that you mentioned BC and the 10%. I, uh, Ryan Reynolds filmed a movie recently here in Vancouver, and he made a decision. It was really cool where um, X percentage of people working on the set were had to be from the BIPOC community. And so we did this like online interview system and this great software. It was really amazing. I went through it just to see what it was like. And so it was him with this video and he's introducing the concept and then you do a video interview with him. Uh, you know, it's all, you know, it's being pre-recorded. It's not him live. And then, you know, he really intentionally set out to make sure he invested in that uh, diversification. That's fantastic. Yeah, good for, good for Ryan. Um, Pedro, where can people go to learn more about Future Skills Center and what you're doing, what you're up to, kind of the, you know, the incredible research, the incredible projects you have going on? Um, well, generally, you know, check us out on our website, on any searchable engine, also on all of the usual social media feeds. Also, if you are in the general uh, field of skills development and education, we have launched a digital community of practice. And you can search for Future Skills Center Community of Practice. And join in. It's you know early days, so right now it's very much just about figuring out like what's happening, what's the latest research, where is it that I can get connected to affinity groups. Eventually, we're going to mature this into a more proactive tool for us to learn from each other, and for us to continue to create links across the country and across sectors. So join up. It's free, and it's a way to continue to not just follow us passively, but to actually get involved in the work. It's incredible. Thank you for being here. It's, it's such an honor. You're, the work you're doing is incredible. It's, it's, you know, I feel like it's shaking up the country from the inside and you're thinking about, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now for our economy and businesses right across this country. Well, it starts with a very simple principle that's so Canadian, which is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. Thank you, Darian. Awesome. Thanks everyone for joining us this week on Marketing News Canada, and we'll see you next time on the show. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. Future Skills Center. Dun, dun, dun.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.